Welcome to a virtual retreat with Cardinal Sean. Christ, our light in the darkness. Today's episode, Mercy and Forgiveness. The parable of the prodigal son helps us to glimpse the mercy of God. It's the story of the anatomy of a sin and evil disguised as something good, the liberty of an individual's rights to his inheritance, the disguised ingratitude of a young man who wants to make his life without the Father, without God. In this parable, there's a moment of discovery. The money runs out, life is no longer fun, we see how sin does not bring happiness, only emptiness. But grace touches the heart of the sinner, and he desires to return to the father's house. The prodigal son begins rehearsing his lines, what he's going to say to dad when he gets home. He's like that young man waiting in line nervously to go to confession. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. But the most beautiful part of this parable is where the Lord describes the old man, the father, searching the horizon, waiting and hoping that the son will return. And when he sees him far off, he runs out to meet him. The boy is dragging his feet, walking slowly. The mercy of God is always swift, even when our repentance is very, very slow and only walks with leaden feet. Oftentimes we forget the context of this parable. This parable actually is addressing the response of the Pharisees who criticized Jesus for eating with sinners. So I always say the Pharisees always criticize Jesus' dietary practices, which were eating with sinners. The parable could have been entitled The Story of the Elder Brother, who's the one who really represents the Pharisees. We must ask ourselves, what did the older brother do to try to prevent the prodigal son from leaving home and his ill-founded plans? The older brother is very quick to, to judge and condemn his younger brother, trying to dissociate himself from him. He says, that son of yours. But the attitude of the father is to go out and seek and to bring his sons home, whether it be the prodigal son returning from his squandering the inheritance that he'd received, or the older, hard-working son returning from the field but indignant when he realizes that his father is celebrating his brother's return. The father shows mercy to the prodigal son and tries to teach mercy to his other son. He says, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But your brother was dead, your brother, and has come back to life. Rejoice. A contemporary Irish author, Brian Moore, wrote a novel which contains a rather amusing scene describing an encounter between the parish priest, and one of his worldly parishioners. Her name is Mrs. Brady, and she's the owner of what the Irish call a bad house. It seems that Mrs. Brady is getting on in years and beginning to think about 
returning to church and cleaning up her obituary, as the Irish say. And she heard that the pastor was taking up a collection to install a new communion rail in the church. So she went to the priest and she said, Father, I'm here to tell you I'm going to pay the entire expense for the new communion rail. The pastor immediately recognized her and was filled with holy indignation and said, Madam, do you think for one moment that I could allow the good parishioners of St. Philomena's parish to come and receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, resting their elbows on the wages of sin and corruption? Mrs. Brady simply looked calmly into his eyes and replied, Father, where do you think Mary Magdalene got the money for the perfume that she used to wash Jesus' feet? It wasn't selling apples. Well, the moral of the story is indeed, Jesus was the friend of sinners. He received those that no one else wanted to receive. He was friend of publican and prostitutes, of Zacchaeus, of Levi, and of many persons whom the respectable people would have nothing to do. Jesus calls them to conversion. He calls them to friendship. He calls them even to ministry. And often he celebrates their change of heart with a feast or a banquet. The gospel is full of conversion stories. Jesus says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 just. The good shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to go in search of the one lost sheep. Today we would probably say, well, the lost sheep can be a tax write-off or an insurance claim. But for Jesus, that lost sheep was the priority. Pope Francis is often challenging us to go in search of those on the periphery, those who are forgotten, rejected, far away. It's bad enough that Jesus has this attitude, but what's really alarming is that he expects us to be of like mind. In the parable of the unjust steward, Jesus talks about a man who owes a fortune to his king. In today's money, he would have to win the jackpot at the lottery several times to be able to pay back the millions that this man owed. He goes to the king and he pleads for clemency, and the king forgave him everything. But as soon as he leaves the king's presence, he runs into a colleague who owes him one denarius, that's one day's wages. And although the man pleads for mercy, he threatens him and throws him into debtor's prison. How many times we are like that unjust steward? God has forgiven us so much, and how many times are we unwilling to forgive each other the petty offenses that we inflict on each other? Jesus is letting us know that the minimal requirement for discipleship is to be ready to forgive each other. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He makes his sun shine in the good and the evil. He sends his rain equally on the just and the unjust. And when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he includes a very dangerous petition in the Our Father. We have to think long and hard before we pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
Is that really what we want? Jesus is telling us that we must pardon the way that God does. A certain existentialist by the name of Anwil wrote a play based on this dangerous petition, forgive us the way that we forgive others. And he called it The Last Judgment. The play opens with the souls of the just and the righteous standing outside the pearly gates waiting to get in. And suddenly, amidst all of their expectation, a rumor begins to circulate that, well, God is going to forgive the other people. Well, they became indignant. Before long, they were shouting and complaining, after all the good, honest life that we led, now the scum of the earth is going to be forgiven? At that moment, they were judged by God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. At one point in the Gospels, a Pharisee says to Jesus, only God can forgive sins. He meant it as a criticism of Jesus' claim to forgive sins, but actually, it's a pretty good description of God. Only God knows how to forgive sins. It's said of we Irish that we don't get mad, we just get even. And Irish Alzheimer's is when you forget everything but the grudges. They also say women forgive but don't forget. Whereas men are often so self-centered that they forget without taking the time and the trouble to forgive. Human forgiveness is often a very, very unpleasant experience, a bitter memory. The superiority, the condensation of the one who's pardoning often crushes the one who's receiving that pardon. There may be forgiveness, but no consolation or encouragement. Whereas when God forgives, He forgives us, as the Holy Father says, with a caress. He doesn't humiliate us. He humbles Himself. The father of the prodigal son doesn't want to hear one more word about the whole episode. He simply wants to have a banquet. Only God can transform pardon into something glorious to remember. God is so happy to absolve us, those who give him the joy of forgiving. He treats us not as difficult and disagreeable children, but as children who are pampered, encouraged, and understood. And we could say, oh, felis culpo, happy fault. If we weren't sinners and didn't need pardon more than we need bread, we would never have any way of imagining how much and how deep God's love is for us. In the conversion of Saul, who's St. Paul, and Levi, who becomes St. Matthew, Jesus surprised them in the very act of sinning. Paul is persecuting the church, following the Christians on the road to Damascus. Levi is charging taxes, exploiting the poor. And in those moments, God forgives them, calls them to conversion, and makes them disciples. He calls them from sin to fidelity to ministry. Matthew leaves the piles of money in the tax collector's booths where he's been exploiting the poor, and he goes and he celebrates a banquet to mark his conversion. Imagine 
someone saying, well, what's that party over at so-and-so's house about? And being told, oh, he just went to confession and he's celebrating. Well, that's what happens in the Gospels. In the episode of the Gospel about the woman caught in adultery, we see how they try to discredit Jesus, bringing him an adulterous woman and asking if she should be stoned. And our blessed Savior, who reads their treacherous heart, says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And afterwards, Jesus begins to write on the ground with his finger. You know, it's the only time in the Gospels where we see Jesus writing anything at all. We don't know for sure what he was writing, but the fathers of the church say he was writing the sins of those men who brought the woman there to be stoned. And indeed, in silence, they begin to sneak away, beginning with the oldest. When they see their sins, the stones begin to fall from their hands. They had forgotten that they too needed God's mercy. God in his mercy has given us the sacrament to concretize his forgiveness. In confession, we write our sins in the sand. We contemplate our guilt and the stones fall from our hands. And then Jesus erases our sins. The sacrament of confession is where we experience God's loving mercy, where Jesus teaches us to be loving and compassionate to others. Pope Francis talks about his own personal vocation as taking place in the context of the sacrament of confession. As a young man, he was going off to a picnic with his friends when suddenly he felt an urge to go to church and receive the sacrament of confession. From that moment on, he felt that God was calling him to a special vocation. And it was on the feast of St. Matthew, the tax collector, who was invited to be a disciple. Many years later, when Padre Jorge Bergoglio was named bishop, he chose as his motto, his bishop's motto, Miserando Arque Eligendo, which comes from the office for the feast of St. Matthew and means seeking him through eyes of mercy, he chose him. Hearkening back to that moment when Jesus chose Matthew, the tax collector, and calls him to be an apostle. The sacrament of God's mercy affords us the opportunity to review our lives in the light of the gospel and respond to the call for an ongoing conversion, overcoming sin and selfishness in our lives so that we will be able to love in an unselfish way, generously and joyfully embracing the mission that God has entrusted to us. In the gospels, Jesus says, we must not be like the Pharisees, only concerned about appearances. We must strive to clean the inside of the cup, to transform our hearts by God's grace. In the sacrament of confession, with gratitude and contrition, we draw near the throne of God's mercy, where the merciful Christ, the friend of sinners, makes himself present to us to show us his mercy and to teach us how to be merciful to others. Many years ago in pre-revolutionary Cuba, there was a popular radio program called La Muralla, which caused quite a stir in the Catholic community in those days. 
It's the story of an upper-middle-class Catholic family, husband, wife, and six children. Every Sunday, the whole family went to Mass. Everyone received communion except the Father. And this was a great source of embarrassment and anxiety to the whole family. Often they tried to convince their dad to go to confession so that he could go to communion with them, but he always refused. The years passed, and when he was dying, his wife and children sent for the parish priest who came and administered the last sacraments. After the man received the sacraments, he called his family around his deathbed, and he explained to them how much he had wanted to receive communion with them, but he couldn't because he had falsified a will when he was a young man. He explained that all the money that they had, their beautiful home, the good life, were a result of this crime. Actually, all these things belonged to a distant cousin of theirs. He said he knew that if he confessed his sin, he would have to make restitution, and he just he couldn't bring himself to do that. Shortly after, the man died. But from that time on, it was his wife and children who stopped going to communion because they weren't ready to give the money back either. It's so easy to judge others severely, but it's only when we find ourselves in the same circumstances that we discover our own weaknesses. In the Delphic Oratory, the ancient Greeks had that temple with the words above the oratory, the sage inscription on the front of the temple said, Gnothe Sauton, know thyself. Personal conversion always begins with self-knowledge. St. Teresa of Avila in her book, The Seven Interior Castles, describes her own interior journey and speaks of meeting giant monsters along the way. The inner journey is often very difficult, but it's part of our vocation as Christians. We need to recognize our own weakness and faults. Nevertheless, the Catholic attitude towards sin is not one of obsession. In the famous history of the Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, an adulterous woman is obliged to wear a large red letter A marking her as an adulteress. Barat, the famous Catholic writer, contrasts this Calvinistic attitude with a Catholic notion of sin. In one of his novels, he describes a fugitive running from the police who goes into this darkened church and he sees a red light in the confessional and he goes in and he says, Father, help me, I just killed a man. And the priest says, how many times? The church has a lively consciousness of sin, but is not obsessed by sin. We profess that where sin doth abound, there doth grace more abound. Grace of God is sufficient. His mercy can cure us. It's stronger than sin. His love is stronger than death. I've always liked the story about the Irish farmer who lived on the banks of a river and each week he looked out the window and he'd see his pastor coming down to the riverbank and shout, the same, and a voice echoed back from the other side of the river, the same. The old farmer was very curious and finally got up enough courage to ask the pastor one Sunday after Mass what was happening. 
And the pastor said, well, you know, I'm the only priest in this village, so to, for my weekly confession, I go down to the river bank, and Father Murphy goes to the bank on the other side, and I shout, the same, the same sins, and he calls back, the same, the same penance. However, we must never allow our confessions to become routine, even if they are frequent. Every confession, like every communion, is a loving encounter with the merciful Lord who binds up our wounds and puts us on his mount and takes us to a safe place, like the Good Samaritan did with the man left half dead on the road to Jericho. The risen Lord appeared to his disciples on Easter. He breathes upon them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you shall forgive. They are forgiven them. We must learn to love the sacrament of God's mercy, where the Lord is always calling us to deepen our conversion, to grow in our capacity to love and to serve, to be more generous in fulfilling our mission in the world, in a world where there are so many divisions, so much hatred, so much racism, so much envy. We need the peace and reconciliation that Christ brings to the world. In the sacrament of His mercy, we learn to be instruments of peace at the world so tragically divided and so hungry for mercy and love needs. Bless the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let me thank all of you for participating in our Lenten mission. I hope that you will tune in tomorrow. God bless you. Good night.